Hello, my name is Wang Yan, and I am a reporter with News China. With our weekly News China podcast, we aim to give insight into the trends and happenings in modern China through a historical lens. Today, we discuss Chinese students' attempts in studying in the U.S. and their encountering in modern history. The decoupling between the U.S. and China is not just a political or economic issue; it affects the lives of many ordinary people. The Trump administration is reportedly considering more visa restrictions on Chinese students. Before that, the visas of more than 1,000 Chinese students and researchers who were thought to have ties with the Chinese military or government were revoked. A survey released in July by EIC Education, a Chinese consultancy on overseas studies, shows that the UK replaced the US as the favorite intended destination of Chinese students in 2019, and the gap was even wider in 2020 due to the tension between China and the US. About 150 years ago, the US was the first country in the world. To receive the first government-funded students from China, their average age was 12. They were sent by the Imperial Qing government and an initiative promoted by the first Chinese graduate from the United States, Rong Hong, who was known as Yong Wen in the U.S. Some of these students became Chinese diplomats, engineers, and military officers. One of them, Liang Cheng, became the Qing court's ambassador to the United States. He was knighted as Sir Cheng Tong Liang Cheng by Great Britain. He initiated and facilitated a project in which some of the reparations paid by the Qing to Western powers for losses over the Boxer Rebellion were used to fund the study of Chinese students in the U.S. and other Western countries. Yang Wing was born to a poor family in Guangdong Province. When he was seven years old, he went to a mission school in Macau, which was set up by Mrs. Guzlaf, the wife of an English missionary, under the auspices of the Ladies' Association of London. Yang did not like school life at first, and even tried to run away. But he apparently changed. He then became one of the first students at another missionary school called the Morrison School, set up by the Morrison Education Society in Macau and Hong Kong. Samuel Robbins Brown, a missionary from Connecticut and a graduate of Yale, was head of the school in Hong Kong. He offered to bring three boys to continue their education in the U.S. with him when he decided to return home. Students could show their willingness by standing up. Yang was the first on his feet. In 1847, the 19-year-old Yang enrolled in Monson Academy, Massachusetts, a preparatory school which is today's Wilbraham and Monson Academy. It was the first school in the U.S. to admit a Chinese student, according to the school's website. In 1850. Yang went to Yale and graduated with a bachelor's degree four years later. At Yale, he was the only yellow in the world," said Harold Cohn, former dean of the Yale Law School, 
in his lecture in 2004 to mark the 150th anniversary of Young's graduation from Yale. After he returned to China, Young served as translator and an aide to Zeng Guofan, one of the key officials in the westernization movement during the last years of the Qing. The purpose of the movement was to adopt Western technology to strengthen the Qing Empire. Yang contributed a lot to the construction of China's first factory with modern industrial technology and equipment. He also proposed sending some students to the U.S. Zeng and another senior official called Li Hongzhang, who was also keen on the westernization movement, supported him. I was determined that the rising generation of China should enjoy the same educational advantages that I had enjoyed, that through Western education, China might be regenerated, become enlightened and powerful. To accomplish that object became the guiding star of my ambition, wrote Yang in his English memoir, My Life in China and America, which was published in 1909. Young believed that it would be better to study abroad from childhood, but parents did not want their young children to leave home and go to a completely strange place across the ocean. After a lot of persuasion, some from families and relatives of Young and his colleagues finally agreed. Altogether, 120 children went to the U.S. for study between 1872 and 1875, divided into four groups of 30. The project was known as the Chinese Educational Mission. It was a long and even dangerous journey. The transcontinental train that the 30 children in the second group took from the west to the east was robbed. Fortunately, their host families in New England received them warmly. They studied in primary and secondary schools in the U.S. first. Some were admitted to college, including Yale, MIT, Columbia, and Howard. The young children were quick to learn not only their lessons, but also their Western lifestyle and ideas. Every Chinese male under the teen's rule had to wear a long queue, a long plate of hair, and their marriage must be arranged by their parents but some of the children cut off their cues, fell in love without parental consent, and even became Christians. The discrimination against Chinese was also rising in the U.S. since the late 1870s. There is no room for Chinese students. This was the answer that Yang received to his application for Chinese students to be admitted to West Point and the Navy Academy and the police. The imperial Qing government was furious and recalled the Chinese students in 1881. The following year, the U.S. passed the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882, the first law to restrict immigration to the U.S. of an entire ethnic group. The children stayed in the U.S. for five to nine years, much shorter than the scheduled 15 years. Some were too young to go to college when they were recalled. Among the 120 children, 94 returned to China, 
The others either died from illness or stayed in the U.S. The project was criticized as a failure by the Qing officials. However, the children contributed a lot to China's development in various fields after they grew up. For example, Zhang Tianyu, the father of China's railway, designed the first railway that China built by itself. Tang Shaoyi was the first premier of the Republic of China. Cai Shaoji was president of Peiyang University, founded in 1895, which is today's Tianjin University. Tang Guan was one of the first leaders of the Tsinghua School and Tsinghua College, which today formed Tsinghua University. Others also made a big achievements in the businesses of mining and the telegraph, as well as in education and diplomacy. Fourteen of the students, the largest part of the cohort, became senior officers of the Qing Navy. The most famous example was Chen Jinghui. During the war between China and Japan in 1894, under the order of the British-educated Captain Deng Shichang, Chen steered his warship, which was badly damaged by gunfire in a collision course with a Japanese warship, but his warship sunk before it could hit the Japanese warship. All the officers and soldiers on board died. Most of the senior Navy officers of the Qing studied abroad in the U.S. or the U.K. They were killed either in the war with Japan in 1894 or by the Qing Emperor after the war. The war not only destroyed the Qing Navy, but also the fruits of the Westernization movement. About 30 years after Chinese children were ordered back to the U.S., the Qing began to send students to the U.S. again. These students made great contributions to the development of China's education and science and technology. The reason lies in the way their studies were founded in the U.S. In the late 19th century, a peasant uprising known as the Boxer Rebellion swept the north of China. Its original purpose was to overthrow the Qing and drive all foreigners out of China. But the Qing believed it was an opportunity to remove West forces from China. The Qing encouraged the Boxer militias to attack foreigners and Christian churches. In June 1900, the Qing army and the Boxers besieged the legation quarter where foreign embassies in Beijing were located. In August that year, an international coalition army from European powers, the U.S. and Japan, captured Beijing. In the Boxer Protocol signed the next year, the Qing was required to pay these countries 450 million tails of silver in 39 years. The powers believed Chinese population was 450 million, so the 450 million taels means every Chinese should pay one tail each. And there was also 4% annual interest. The total amount was more than double the original 4.50 million taels. It was much higher than the losses of inflicted on Western countries during the Boxer Rebellion and a heavy burden for Chinese people. U.S. President Theodore Roosevelt 
began to consider refunding the extra reparations that exceeded the true losses of the U.S. The amount in question was much more than the amount that Qing had already paid, as the payment was due in 39 years. The only way of refunding it was to reduce or even write off the debts. However, other Western powers would have been fr frustrated if the U.S. had done this. There was also strong opposition from within the U.S. In addition, the imperial Qing government, which would have been held responsible for the conflict, had appropriated more money from the Chinese people to pay for their reparations. The Qing rulers would never give the money back to his people even if the U.S. refunded the money. The idea of refunding sounds morally good, but it was not feasible technically. In 1903, Sir Chen Tong Liang Cheng, one of the 120 children in the Chinese educational mission, became China's ambassador to the U.S. He came up with the idea of using the money that would be refunded to pay for Chinese students to study in the U.S. The Qing would continue paying the reparations to the U.S., but it would be spent on Chinese students. A special committee would be set up for this purpose. In this way, the money from the Chinese people would contribute to China's education. Liang used his connections in the U.S. education and diplomatic fields to promote his proposal. He also lobbied President Roosevelt in their meetings. Liang Cheng was only 17 years old, too young to go to college, when all the children were recalled. But he was a famous baseball player in his secondary school, the Philip Academy Endeavor. This experience helped him build good personal relations with President Roosevelt, according to Liang's profile at Endeavor. The president supported Liang's proposal. Each year, 100 students were selected through an exam to study in the U.S. Besides, Tsinghua School was set up as a preparatory school for students to be sent to the U.S. It then became Tsinghua University, today's one of the China's most prestigious universities. A few years later, other powers, which had signed the Boxer Protocol, with the exception of Japan, followed suit. A punishment imposed on the Chinese people was turned into pressure on the Qing rulers to improve education. The program lasted till 1940. Its graduates made great contributions to the modernization of China's science and technology and education. Some graduates became famous educators and scholars later, including Hu Shi, a former president of Peking University, Mei Yiqing, former president of Tsinghua University, and Zhao Yuanren, a famous educator. Some of the money was used for a special project to fund Tsinghua students to study in the U.S. It required that 80% of these students major in the sciences. The purpose was to improve China's research on basic theories. Graduates financed by the project included Qian Xuesen, father of China's aerospace exploration, and Yang Zhenning, the first ethnic Chinese who was awarded Nobel Prize in physics in 1957. For their home countries, students who study abroad bring back not only science and technology, but more importantly, border visions and minds. 
In today's world, it is not possible to keep a nation apart from the rest of the world. Exchanges and communication should always prevail. May the pandemic and the political tensions pass as soon as possible, so students abroad can enjoy the lives and studies in their host countries again. That is end of our podcast this week. Thank you to our writer Song Yimin, editor and translator Li Jia, and copy editor Kathleen Nadi. We hope you enjoyed it, and thank you for listening. See you next week.